We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect to the Love Is Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome my co-host, Kim Sorrell, author of Love Is. Kim, how are you? And you're excited about our guests again because they are another part of this whole cog when it comes to the movie Life Mark. I am doing great, Neil. Thank you so much. And yes, I'm so excited about the Kendrick Brothers. They have done such amazing things. You guys have done such amazing things. I think Neil grew a beard just to fit in with you guys today. <laughs> but <laughs> life we'll mark, it. courageous. My word, you people have changed lives and had themes on movies. I don't know what your first videos were like when you were kids, but holy cow, the things that you have done have been astounding. And I appreciate you so much what you've done in the world of Christian films and the lives that you've touched and I, I personally know marriages that were saved because of fireproof. You guys mm. are amazing and dads that changed because of courageous. And anyway, can't wait to talk to you guys. Welcome to the show. Thank uh, you so much. Good to be you. with you. You're very kind. We now, know, guys, we know how, that God, how, God how, has done it. How did this start? How did this all start? How did you guys, this become a partnership with you two? Like, how did that happen? Well, yeah, so we had finished the movie Overcomer a few years ago. Kirk Cameron gives us a call, says, guys, you got to look at this short documentary on this true story about an 18-year-old girl who at the last second rolls off the abortion table, walks out of the clinic, decides to place her child for adoption instead of aborting it. And a Christian couple adopted this baby, named him David. And when David grew up, when he was about 18, 19 years old, he got to cross paths and meet that biological mother. And um, that was recorded by a friend, and we saw that uh, original footage. It's actually a part of a short little documentary called I Lived on Parker Avenue. And uh, so Kirk Cameron showed it to us. Man, we all teared up and said, this is a beautiful story that that uh, that has the value of life, the beauty of adoption, and there's lots of twists and turns. So that is what Life Mark is. And so we turn it into a feature film that is now available on Pure Flix and DVD and Blu-ray in December. Well, wow. and and it got its beginning in the theaters and stayed longer than maybe you thought it was going to. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, they usually when Fathom will do a release, it's two nights, three nights, and they gave us seven days starting on a Friday night, which was unprecedented for them. And uh, and then it kept getting extended because people kept going to see it. It ended up being, I think, number three in Fathom's history. And so we, we've been grateful because people have really supported the film. And it's been shocking at the Rotten Tomatoes reviews not only with the reviewers, but also with the audiences that they have raved about this movie. We did multiple things that were out of the box for us. It was a true story. So we're interviewing the real lives, trying to pick the most powerful moments to incorporate in the film. We also de-aged Kirk Cameron and Rebecca Rogers 20 years for these flashback sequences and it works, yeah. you know, we were wondering, are we going to be able to pull this off? And so, but the movie does take you on an emotional roller coaster of twists and turns. We're so grateful now that people are going to be able to watch it at home on Pure Flix this week with Thanksgiving with their families. In fact, Pure Flix is doing a whole new thing where for 99 cents, you can sign up uh, for the first two months uh, only 99 cents a month for people can, can access that giant library they have of, family 
friendly films, faith friendly films. It's a really a good alternative to Amazon Prime, Netflix, those things out there because you can know that you can trust the content that's up there. And Life Mark is being released starting today. So you got to be excited about that. You got to be excited about. So did you think the film was going to do this well? When you guys, because uh, you've had successful films before, so did you know? Hey, you know, we the Kendrick brothers are going to have another one. Well, this is our first Fathom event, and Fathom events traditionally do one to two million. This one did over five million, so Fathom was thrilled with that. Uh, but the fact that it's going to be in countries all over the world, multiple languages, and so you know, even looking at the back of the. DVD, the numerous languages, and we loved packing on this thing on the DVD and Blu-ray, as well as the uh, the the download uh, in mid, uh, available in mid-December. Every special feature you would want about the story, the process mm-hmm. of filmmaking, from bloopers and deleted scenes uh, to the the heart behind the the movie, and we're just very grateful how it came together and excited to show it. And, and Neil, to answer your question, Alex and I figured out that we've basically been wrong on predicting how every film that we've done <laughs> is going to do. <laughs> We're like, we've had some, we thought, oh, this is going to blow up the box office. And then it does, you know, less than we think. And then others that we think, oh, it's just barely going to scrape by. And then it explodes. And we're like, so even with this one, the 100% Rotten Tomatoes, we've never had anything even close to that. Right. So we've been scratching our heads going, man, the responses to Life Mark have been fantastic. And then to read the reviews of the, uh, the uh, you know, the viewers in the audience, what they're saying about it. It's not just, hey, I enjoyed this film, but I was moved so deeply, or this is my story, or everybody needs to see this. So uh, we felt that way the first time we saw the documentary. And we knew that if we could capture that emotion that we felt in the documentary, that the movie would work. But I think God just answered a whole lot of prayers in helping us to get it into the finish line. Kirk did a great job in this movie. And uh, we think it's going to be a rewatcher for people. And we think that they will not only be moved emotionally, but we hope to save a lot of lives and change a lot of hearts in the process. So. Absolutely. Yes. You know, I, when I saw the movie, I think I cried more than any other movie. And I think I laughed maybe more than any other movie. You did (laughs) such a great job of this incredible balance of keeping some humor in so that I'm not just crying the entire movie. I appreciate that very much. Who's the, who's the genius behind that? The both of you together or who's the, who's the one? Well, it's hard to say that somebody is the one. I would say we're grateful for a great team. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've had a wonderful team helping to put this together. And the fact that we got to include the real people that the movie is about in the whole process. And so uh, the the writing was interesting because we interviewed um, the the people that this movie is about and included much of the actual dialogue that they actually had. And anytime that that uh, pieces were recorded in real life, like when they were meeting each other and there were cameras rolling, we included the actual dialogue in the movie. So I don't know how brilliant that is that we just yeah. copy pasted <laughs> the actual dialogue, but the, the, it's such a powerful story that just to tell the story was a blessing and amazing for us. I would also say that Alex and I, uh, as we're interacting with our own kids, our wives, and we're interacting with other people in ministry, uh, we see how God can take people in very dark, broken situations and redeem their lives. And many times it brings us to tears as we hear those stories, as we watch the original documentary. 
but also we like to laugh a lot. <laughs> and uh, sometimes in the midst of the emotion, we're laughing at funny things that are happening in the same context. And so when we're riding together and when we're interacting with one another and we're praying together, a lot of times we're in tears talking about a scene or we're laughing. And we hope that that translates into the movie because as we're editing, sometimes we'll realize, you know, we got 10 jokes here. Three of them don't work. We're going to take those out, but we're going to keep these other seven because they do work and we hope the audience will enjoy them. And I think that's the key thing is being able to have them enjoy enjoy it and coming up with those ideas so how much work does it take place to make it change it make a document take a documentary and make it a feature film i mean that's not the easiest thing in the world right you're gonna have to really no. do a lot of research look at the different things put all that together to make it but also make it entertaining right that's exactly right. And, and it's important to us that whoever watches the story has those moments, uh, those tender moments where you may tear up as well as laughter or as well as uh, wondering, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen next? And so that that uh, we had a good team of counselors because we're not just creating stuff. We're wanting to uh, be loyal to what actually happened, mm -hmm. but how to form that in a, in a movie, you know, hour and a half to two hour process and make it work. That, that is a little bit difficult, but at the same time, so grateful for the team around us, the producers, um, the the uh, actors, the the real people willing to be on set and give us counsel. We had the, and some of the most emotional scenes of the movie, the, the real people it was about were standing right there saying, this is how I felt, this is why I acted this way, or this is what I said. So we were able to incorporate that into the movie with the actors right there. And so it was it was a different process, but we really enjoyed it. And we've never been able to uh, have an experience where people watch a feature film and immediately they want to go watch the true story yeah. documentary that is available online for anybody to see for free. And yeah. so there's so many people have watched the movie and then they immediately go watch the documentary and they're like, man, I totally am seeing where all this came from. And I can't believe how realistic this was portrayed. The thing I like about the feature film, though, is we're able to go into the hearts and minds of the people through the flashbacks. But we're also able to pull a lot of nuggets and power moments in their lives that was not featured in a 30 minute documentary. So uh, we feel like it's the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those guilty people. I immediately went and watched the documentary. <laughs> so yeah, I can see why people would do that. And it was fabulous. It was so great to see them side by side. And when mm -hmm. we talked to David, we were able to interview David. And what a great guy, first yes. of all. But secondly, he said that that he felt so validated. Like you guys were calling him when you had a question about something. You made sure that it was his story. Right. And and not all films do that. There's a lot of people that get really upset the way their life is portrayed on on the big screen. So kudos for that. How did that work out for you guys? Well, it was it was fun to include them. And the fact that uh, David uh, and Melissa Coles, the birth mother and the Scottons, the 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 family, the adoptive family. Uh, the fact that they were there with us uh, walking through it, you know, and, and they're going to uh, be ministers of this movie and promote it as well for them to be able to say, yes, they did a good job with the accuracy and in including us in this whole process. We're not just looking for movies to do and another gig to do. We want these mm -hmm. movies to touch lives and change hearts. And, and this movie was such a beautiful example of, you know, everybody's story is different, but this movie was a beautiful example of how it could go. 
uh, if you apply love, if you include the Lord. And so LifeMark just was a great representation of that. And, and as you said, to see David now, he is a lawyer now, newly married. He One of the things he does is help other families adopt children. Mm-hmm. How beautiful is that? He, that he was... Yeah. Go ahead. He's a great guy. I mean, when we got to talk, Kim and yes. I talked to him, a fantastic guy for sure. And that's the great... He's showing exactly why life is such an important part of everything. That's definitely... Great, what you're talking about for sure. Well, and when Alex called me the first time he saw I lived on Parker Avenue, he said, I immediately liked this guy in the first few minutes and I wanted to go on a journey with him. And then when we met the Scottons, they are a, a fun family. Uh, and the kindness that they have demonstrated. We did want to honor all the people that were involved. We didn't want anybody to be offended. It's You're always juggling everybody's story, trying to figure out how to balance it out. One of the things I love about Life Mark is you get to see the journey of this uh, crisis, unwanted pregnancy, and the decisions that the teenagers are making, the life of the of the baby growing up, you get to see the adoption perspective of the parents and the friends, the grandparents, their involvement, the meeting later on that takes place between all the family. It kind of gives you this fuller understanding of how much is involved in one person's journey and in one person's life. And so we tried to balance that and how the story unfolded. But uh, we, we think that the people have been blessed by it. We've been hearing incredible stories already of people making decisions about adoption or life. And uh, we're so glad that it's going to get to be available now to the rest of the world. All right, Kim, quick question about love is go ahead, Kim. So you guys, I decided I would live a year to figure out the true meaning of love. And I found it, which is amazing, right? Because it's like this mystery, but God is love. So it's something you can be not just an emotion. And so what did it mean? I I was diagnosed with cancer four months later, my husband was, and he died six weeks after that from pancreatic cancer. And it, but it sent me on this journey because I I had to do something. And mostly I was in Haiti when I did it. It was sort of an eat, pray, love experience, actually kind of crazy. And um, I wrote a book about it. Love is. And so if you're looking for your next movie, keep that in mind. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Little pitch, you know, just for fun. But I'm always curious, uh, like you guys, you each have six kids. I don't know if you're battling back and forth, one of you having one, so the other one you had to quick have another one, or <laughs> however it worked for you. I've got two brothers with four kids each. I've got five, and so we kind of did that in a way. I don't know. But love is obviously a huge part of everything you do. Love is why you seem to be in the business that you're even in and what you pick for your themes and I'm just curious, like, what what is love to you guys? Like, how does love play into the Kendricks brothers, what you guys do? You want to start? Wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, God is love. He created love. He is the best definition of love. And, and what do we do with our entire society? Most songs on the radio are about love. Most movies Um, have an aspect of love or trying to figure out what love is. And so love is is a primary ingredient to life itself. And so for us to know the Lord and be able to point people to him is one way we can love people, presenting truth and love because they have to be balanced. Truth is important, but truth without love is painful. 
and hard to receive, but truth and love together is a great mm -hmm. balance. And so one of our goals with each of our films is trying to uh, present what we are saying in story form with truth and love. And so that is an ingredient and a motivation for each of our films. I, I would add to that, that God has wired us as relational beings and his full intention is that we are loved by him and we love him back. You know, he, the greatest commandment Jesus said is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, uh, Jesus said the fulfillment of all the law is when we choose to love, because I'm not going to lie to you or commit adultery or steal from you or murder you if I love you. And if he, if we will do what Jesus did and focus in on love, then all these other positive things will be as a result of that. In 1 Corinthians 13, uh, it's, it says love is not rude, selfish, irritable, angry. But when it says love is, it gives us two things. Love is patient and it's kind. Kindness is love on the offense, taking initiative uh, to meet other people's needs and to, 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 to be right where they are. And patience is love on the defense. When we are attacked, when evil, when uh, when wrong things happen, for us to be able to respond, to be slow to anger and give people grace, that's undeserved. And so when we see that parallel in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, it says in Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit is actually the one that pours out God's love into our hearts, and he also enables us to love other people. So when we give our lives to Jesus— we are basically embracing the cross of Christ, which is the greatest selfless sacrifice to meet our greatest need. And when Jesus did that and we're receiving his love and placing our faith in his cross, not only does he open up our hearts and pour out love into us, but he enables us then to love not only our friends, but our enemies, and which doesn't even make sense to the world. And so uh, this invitation to love that God has is through a relationship with Jesus. Both Alex and I, our lives have been transformed by the gospel of Christ. And because of it, God has put a love in our hearts, not only for him, but for other people. And it does translate into our filmmaking because we're not just trying to sell movie tickets. We want to bless and help and bring healing and hope to the hearts of the people who are sitting in the theater with popcorn in their laps, who are struggling in their families and struggling with purpose in life and struggling in their walk with God. And so, yes, we want to entertain them, but more important than that, we hope to bring a message of truth in a loving way that will touch their hearts and lead them into a growing relationship with Christ. And so uh, love is everything to us because God, God is love, like you said. That's just tremendous how you were able to bring all that best place. Again, I'll be right now. It's available on Pure Flix as of November 22nd today and December yes. 12th, right? It's available. December 13th. Thir December 13th. 13th. Yeah. It's available. There you go. That's it, guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. It was such a great, great Christmas gift. Great <laughs> Christmas gift. Got to go ahead and do that. That's the time, right? And Black Friday yeah. as well. So I appreciate That's it, guys. Right. Thanks again for stopping by. Thank, Thank you, you, guys. All Enjoy right. it. All right. That you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment.
welcome to Growing Older with Enthusiasm with our host, Dr. Ron Kaiser. Dr. Ron, how are you? And again, we just keep having these conversations, but the, the whole mission you have of growing older with enthusiasm, such an important thing because we shouldn't look at aging as a death sentence. It should be a time that we're using our wisdom and different things to enjoy our life and be happy, right? Absolutely. It should be a life sentence. And I've been really heartened by how many people have joined the Growing Older with Enthusiasm community. Really great that we can get guests who can provide information that can help them do so. And so who's our guest today? Well, today we have a very special and important guest for our purposes. That's Stephen Moses, who is the president of uh, <clears throat> the Center for Long-Term Care Reform. And uh, I know long-term care is one of those things that we may not want to think about it, and too, too many people delay thinking about it, and uh, then it becomes real expensive. And, uh, you know, realistically, I think that it's always better to prevent rather than wait for a crisis to occur. So uh, Stephen's doing some really great work. Welcome to our podcast, Stephen. Looking forward to talking with you. Well, thank you, Ron. And uh, likewise, uh, you really hit the nail on the head pointing out that people tend to uh, ignore long-term care until they need it. That's the essence of the problem. And what we're trying to do is to get people to plan ahead so that they can age with enthusiasm in the best, with the best possible care as they begin to need it. And generally, just so I'm not assuming anything uh, and and not having the listeners assume anything. When we talk about long-term care, what are we talking about? Is that aging in place, uh, assisted living, nursing homes? What, 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 are, what do we commonly know of as long-term care? All of the above. Really, long-term care in, involves the uh, services, both medical and social services that people may need when they can no longer perform uh, critical activities of daily living for themselves uh, without, without help, such as um, transferring, uh, using the toilet, uh, bathing, these basic things that they need help with uh, in, are encompassed by uh, the need for long-term care. So it could involve care in the person's own home as well as in a facility. Am I correct? All the research shows that people prefer to get the care they need in their home. Uh, it's the so-called aging in place uh, movement. Uh, the problem is we have our social system for long-term care set up so that it creates a kind of funnel that leads to nursing home care as opposed to home and community-based care, which people prefer. And that's really because uh, this well-intentioned financing program called Medicaid which is really means-tested public assistance, was designed to provide the care people needed, but was oriented to providing nursing home care and has become available to people long after they're young, healthy, and affluent enough to plan 
privately for long-term care, they have ignored that risk and been enabled to ignore the risk by virtue of the fact that Medicaid pays for the vast majority of long-term catastrophic costs later. So we've created kind of a moral hazard that has directed people into the kinds of care that they would prefer to avoid and could avoid if they only acted earlier in life. Now, Stephen, so I'm just interested to know that why has this is the big reform you want is long-term care to be provided in homes more, right? Because they feel more, it could be in their they could be in their parent, their kids' homes too, but somewhere instead of being in a nursing home where they feel isolated. Exactly. We need to recognize why nursing home remains, after all these decades, the primary venue of care for long-term custodial care. And it is that Medicaid has paid mostly for that, and that's what Medicaid pays for. What we need to do is redirect people so that they begin to plan for long-term care when they're still young, healthy, and affluent enough to be able to qualify for private insurance or to have time to save, invest, or insure. There's more than enough money out there in the American economy to fund the kind of care people prefer, but we have to remove the disincentives that operate now in public policy, discouraging people from doing what they need to do when they're still able to do it in order to avoid the dependency on Medicaid later on. Yeah, it's a complicated subject, and I I would understand if you need to ask a lot of follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. Well, when we talk about disincentives, uh, I think if if nothing else, I think COVID nineteen presented us with the disincentive of you know not wanting to really be in a facility with a lot of older immunocompromised people if you can do that, and. Uh, you know, obviously that's that's a complex thing that involves people taking care of themselves physically and mentally and so on, uh, in addition to being able to ideally age in place. So uh, let's move from the theoretical to the practical. If uh, somebody is sitting there listening, uh, as I said, we always think about prevention as being better than, than crisis. So what's uh, as an individual what should somebody be doing to follow the model that you're talking about well as far as prevention goes uh you know eating healthy exercising doing all the things that the articles in the media recommend that you to do that's the best you can do but according to research about 70% of us after age 65 are going to develop a fairly severe Uh, long-term care need, and 48% will require uh, paid care. In other words, they won't be able to manage just with friends and families helping. So while prevention is wonderful, uh, we need to prepare for the eventuality that uh, long-term care is going to catch up with us at some point. So how do we do that? Well, it's important to recognize that the public programs that have been there paying primarily, such as Medicaid and Medicare, and 
it's not commonly understood, but also Social Security. Once people are on Medicaid, they have to contribute all of their income to offset Medicaid's cost for their care. So Social Security actually pays about half of what uh, we call out-of-pocket expenses. In other words, it's really important to understand the vulnerability of the public programs, not just Medicaid, but Medicare and Social Security face gigantic unfunded liabilities, something like $35 trillion for Social Security alone. When those programs face insolvency, as they're predicted to do in the next decade or so, uh, it will create a tremendous strain on Medicaid's ability to fund long-term care. So what I would advise people to do is to awaken to the reality that the public funding for long-term care may not be there in the future. So they should look at the alternatives to prepare to be able to pay privately. Long-term care insurance is one option, but it has been uh, fairly challenged because of the competition with the public programs and for other reasons, uh, the costs are very high. Uh, so that's a, a, that is a direction that we might take to understand. But people should also realize that home equity is a gigantic $11 trillion fund that is out there that could go to help people buy the kind of long-term care they prefer, but doesn't now because Medicaid exempts home equity. It's like a, a, a magnet pulling people into it because their home equity is protected uh, at, at a minimum of $636,000 and a maximum in quite a few states of uh, over $955,000. So I'll pause there, but you see what I'm getting at. People need to think about the future, not look at the past and how their parents, for example, got long-term care because that system may not be there going forward. So they need to research what their options are to pay for long-term care going forward. In so the meantime, I'm working, yeah, I was I'm working on a pay. I'll go, go, see go ahead. No, I was going to ask, you, know, you continue in the meantime, and I'll ha I have a question for you then. Oh, only that I'm working on a paper now that is the second in a series. The first paper has already been published called Long-Term Care, The Problem, and that envisions uh, and discusses the things I've been sharing with you so far. And the next paper that will be out uh, hopefully after the just shortly after the first of the year will be titled Long-Term Care, The Solution. And it will look at ways to remove the perverse incentives that have discouraged responsible long-term care planning and create new positive incentives that will get people prepared to either purchase insurance or to save or to use their home equity or to draw on the $20 trillion in life insurance benefits that are out there. We need to reconfigure the incentives in the long-term care system to get people prepared to be able to choose but their own care that they prefer instead of relying on whatever the government uh, can afford to and chooses to give them through a welfare program like Medicaid. So, so Stephen, basically what you're sta stating is that 
planning. So give us some steps of what planning people should do for long-term care and people should be planning it. And again, people listening to my radio show as well, should, and then they're not close to retirement age and different things should start planning for long-term care. Now that's the thing that you're. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly it. The problem is when people need to be planning, saving, investing, insuring for long-term care, it's the same time of their life in their 40s and 50s when they're dealing with house payments, saving for kids, uh, college education, making car payments, and so on. There's a lot of demand on their time and resources, but we have to set this thing up so that they have a reason to deal with long-term care then, because if you don't deal with it then, uh, obviously you can't buy fire insurance when your house is in flames. So you can't expect to buy long-term care insurance or to have any other means of paying for long-term care if you're already in need of that kind of assistance. So getting people's attention early is critical, but simply educating people as we have for the last 50 years, that if you don't buy long-term care insurance, or if you don't prepare for long-term care, you could lose your life savings later on if you're hit by catastrophic costs. That is not true. It never has been true. And that's why it has never worked to convince people to take personal responsibility. And that brings up the really critical topic of what I call the fallacy of impoverishment. There's a common understanding that Medicaid as a welfare program isn't available to you until you've uh, used up all of your income and assets and fallen into destitution. But most people are aware of this phenomenon of attorneys who artificially impoverish affluent clients, get them on Medicaid, get them in the very best facilities by ensuring they have some private money to pay for a while because the nursing homes are desperate for private payers who pay half again as much as Medicaid pays. So the real problem is that uh, although we've tried to convince people they need long-term care planning, uh, the reality is when they do nothing, they end up able uh, to uh, reconfigure their income and assets and qualify for Medicaid. Actually, Medicaid long-term care financial eligibility rules are very generous. Uh, income is theoretically limited to welfare level, but the reality is before determining income eligibility, the state Medicaid agencies deduct your medical and long-term care expenses, which are usually very high for people who need long-term care. Likewise, asset eligibility, you can only have $2,000 in countable assets, but you can have unlimited other assets, including, as I mentioned, uh, home equity up to very high limits. And beyond that, with no uh, uh, dollar limit. You can, you can have a business, including the capital and cash flow. Uh, you can have one automobile of unlimited value. and It's not a transfer of assets, disqualifying to give it away. Uh, you can have, in other words, substantial wealth, including personal belongings, even uh, heirlooms. <laughs> you buy a diamond ring this week, and claim it's a family heirloom, it isn't counted for eligibility. So we have kind of set a trap 
for aging Americans that results in their ending up relying on Medicaid. And if they rely on Medicaid, it's predominantly a nursing home financing system. Mm. Well, I, uh, first of all, this information is really new to a lot of people, including me. Uh, but the other thing I'd like to advocate for is I know uh, we've had long-term care insurance for, I'd say, at least 30 years when uh, uh -huh. we looked into it when my mother-in-law uh, was likely to need it, which she eventually did. And the costs for us, for my wife and I combined, were so substantially lower uh, than than it would it was at her age when we bought it at our ages. So that even though there have been some recent increases, it's still a pretty affordable insurance. And uh, you know, I think that the reality is a lot of people uh, carried disability insurance, which I've kind of outlived. A lot of people have carried life insurance, term life insurance, which. Uh, became prohibitive uh, once you reach a certain age. Um, I'd like to also not use my long-term care insurance, but I, I, you know, so I'm trying to stay healthy enough. But uh, you know, it's it's nice to know that it's there, and so far uh, has been reasonably affordable by getting it at an early age. So I, I, your advice certainly is is very important and appropriate. You know, it's interesting when people do really smart uh, financial planning, estate planning, they buy term life insurance when they're young and it would be a tragedy if their income were lost for their family. It's curious uh, and encouraging, I think, that when you get to be in your early 50s or so and private long-term care insurance is still fairly inexpensive, that's exactly when you're likely to have accumulated an estate and don't really need that term life insurance anymore. So you take the premium for term and use it to buy long-term care insurance uh, and then you're covered for your entire uh, lifespan that way. And as we're learning, as uh, Ron and I had a good friend of ours on, uh, Alan Porter, that there's a lot of different life insurance prop packages that are that are that are the that, that are cash value life insurance and things like that. You can utilize reverse mortgages, things like that that you can end up using for long-term care as well as what you brought up in the if you do have the wealth to do so you can show specific money so that you don't end up in a specific situation where they're taking certain things away from you. So there's a lot of things available and having the right planners are involved. And Stephen, do you partner with a lot of those people in your organization to help uh, people who are that um, are dealing with long-term care issues? Well, I have a membership organization and the members uh, include some people in the long-term care service delivery system, uh, but mostly people who are involved in long-term care insurance in one way uh, or another. And they pay an, an annual dues and I publish uh, weekly and bi-weekly material for them. And then uh, I call it the big benefit. And the big benefit is supporting my work 
to do long-term care research and advocacy on behalf of the idea that we need to get people prepared to be able to pay their own way for long-term care so that they choose uh, the venue and quality and type of care that they prefer instead of being dependent on whatever the government can afford or chooses to pay. Well, Stephen, you've answered a lot of my questions, but I think that there are a couple of things that may have done a bit of a disservice about uh, in that we just had you start talking. Uh, you've got quite an impressive background, and uh, I know when I, uh, when I was going to college, I don't recall any, uh, any majors in long-term care, uh, so I, I'm just uh, wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background in this field, how you got into it, and perhaps finish up with letting us know uh, how people can get, find your work, find you, get in touch with you, and so on. Sure. Well, I uh, was a career U.S. government uh, employee working for the Health and Human Services Department. Back then, it was called HEW. Uh, later with the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services. And I came across this phenomenon that Medicaid was paying for most long-term care after people needed it. And that made me realize that uh, this new product back then that was coming along called private insurance didn't have a prayer as long as people could ignore the risk, avoid the premiums, wait until they got sick, and then turn over the liability to the taxpayers. So I got interested in this. I wrote a paper for the uh, Health and Human Services and then again for the Inspector General. It got picked up by the Government Accountability Office. Uh, we got most of our recommendations into federal statute uh, in the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993. But I quickly realized that working for the government, I wouldn't be able to go out and say and do the things I needed to do to get the ball over the goal line. So I left government in 1987, uh, actually 1989, and worked with a company that designed and marketed long-term care insurance. And uh, when they were bought out by uh, General Electric, I concluded that working for GE would be as encumbering as working for the federal government so I told them, look, you need me doing what I do and saying what I say, but I can't do it working for you. So they helped me along with other insurance carriers to set up the Center for Long-Term Care Reform, uh, whose mission is to ensure quality long-term care for all Americans by getting people to in a position to pay for their own care instead of being dependent on public programs. And that's what I've been doing ever since, including uh, one year uh, full-time traveling around the country in what I called the long-term care consciousness tour in a little 16-foot Airstream trailer told by a silver FJ cruiser and uh, giving speeches and doing media and trying to promote the idea of for people to plan ahead. And uh, so that's uh, what I've done, and that's what I'm uh, doing yet today. Wow, it's impressive, isn't it, Dr. Ron? Uh, yeah, definitely. And how can people find out more about you and reach you and your materials and so on? 
Very simple. Uh, our website is www.centerltc.com. My email address is smoses at centerltc.com. And I enjoy hearing from people. Uh, I think it's evident that this is the passion of my life. And so I'm happy to talk to anybody with a, uh, with a question about long-term care, any aspect of it. And uh, I can be reached at 425-891-3640. So please don't hesitate. Get in touch. Let's talk it through. Fabulous. I mean, it's just such great information. Last tip for people, I guess we know at 50, uh, the, the, this is where you definitely contact your organization and look at specific people that really understand uh, long-term care insurance and planning for long-term care. What steps do you think people need to take specifically enough, especially if they have loved ones they're concerned about that are going to have to see long-term care soon? What tips would you provide them? What would you ask them to do? Because again, we're having an age where there are people in their 60s that are getting ready to, that, that their, their, their parents might be going into a nursing home. They might be going into something that they, they might have been certain. What recommendations do you give them? Well, uh, it's best to plan early. As we mentioned, it gets more expensive the later it gets. The options that you have narrow as you get older. Uh, once people actually need care, as I said, the system kind of channels them towards nursing home dependency on Medicaid. But it should be, people should be aware as early as possible study this issue, become familiar with it. Do not assume that the protections that have been there publicly financed in the past will be there in the future and try to focus on how you can be prepared to pay your own way when the time comes. Because as long as you can, your options remain open and the quality of care that you're likely to be able to obtain is much higher. We appreciate it. Great, great information, wasn't it, Dr. Ron? Terrific, terrific. Really learned a lot and appreciate the way that you set it out for us. And uh, again, it, it really dovetails with our philosophy of growing older with enthusiasm. And certainly the more that a person can uh, be in control of their life, even when there are some medical issues, uh, the greater the quality of life and the greater the potential for enthusiasm. So thank you so much for sharing your information with us. All right. Well, we thank it. you so much for giving me this opportunity to share my passion and my ideas on this subject. You're so knowledgeable, Steve, and we appreciate it. Definitely going to have to uh, continue to stay connected. That's the great thing about uh, you know, connecting with people that have the same like-minded individuals. And I know Dr. Ron and yourself do, and I definitely want to help older adults. And that's why I love working with Dr. Ron. So I appreciate it, guys. That was a great growing older with enthusiasm and also the Neil Haley show. Take care. the neil haley show also the media giant effect and love is celebrity segment i'm excited to welcome program my co-host kim sorrell author of love is kim how are you and i know you're excited about our guest today 
Neil, I am doing great. And I cannot even tell you how excited I am about our guest today. Dallas Jenkins, you are a superstar. The Chosen, <laughs> I think, is transforming lives. Like, it's amazing what you've done. You've had such uh, guts in your career going after things when you thought you were at the lowest and then the highest ever crowdfunded film and you just keep going strong. I cannot wait to hear from you and what you have to say. Uh, your wife is gorgeous, by the way, and your kids are <laughs> so cute and it must be fun running around after them. So welcome, Dallas. It's so nice to meet you. Wow. What an intro. Thank you so much. And I for sure agree with you on uh, my wife and kids. So yeah, we're off to a good start. <laughs> good, good. So uh, your Christmas special that you did last year, is that going to come on again this year? How is that going to work? No, so so yeah, so we did a Christmas special last year that it consisted of a new, uh, brand new episode that we had kept under wraps. It was focused on the birth of Christ, and and uh, we put that together with a bunch of music videos uh, with some incredible artists singing Christmas songs, and we put that in theaters. Uh, it was originally only going to be a day or two, just as kind of a special event, and it sold out so fast, and the response was so significant that we ended up doing it like a normal theatrical run. And uh, it ended up being in the top five at the box office, and and uh, we barely spent any money or even tried really hard. It was so it was kind of an extraordinary experience, which has led to our decision this year to release the first two episodes of season three in uh, in theaters. So yeah, it's been it's been quite a ride. There's so much about this that has been uh, kind of unexpected and different. Well, Dallas, it's unexpected and different just to go back to your father and how this has all developed to where you've done. How much do you feel that you've learned from your father? To to where you are today and the success you've been having, especially what you've done. Yeah, I think uh, that's been a, an awesome opportunity because my dad, 25 years ago, um, when he launched the Left Behind books, uh, it was similar. There, there was no expectation of huge success. It wasn't why he did it. It was, and he just worked to try to, to write, you know, good books and honor the gospels and honor the story of the Bible and honor Jesus. And that series blew up. And now the things I learned from him then are, are one obviously the storytelling gene i think i i you know I'm happy to be part of that in our family but two watching him handle uh, extraordinary success um i've experienced failure i've experienced i mean the movie that i did before the show was a huge failure and left me wondering if i was ever going to make another project again well now that the chosen is uh, had the success that it's had it's been easier for me to recognize that i have little to do with it not only because of what's happened, but also because I was able to watch my dad go through the same thing with Left Behind and the humility that he exhibited, as opposed to the sense of arrogance or complacency was for sure. I, when I look back on it now, it was, a, it was a great model for me that at the time I could never have known was going to be uh, a model that would matter to me in the future. But it's proven to be so. And it's been really beautiful to, to, to be part of. What a what a legacy. I mean, honestly, that's a, such a beautiful thing to say about your dad. And I remember watching uh, interviews and things with him back in the day. And of course, the books are still selling, but he always did come from such a humble place. And uh, that was that was beautiful. And for you to take that on now is amazing. And the chosen at theaters. I know so many people that are just chomping at the bit and cannot wait to see the, the entire season. But uh, tell us more about The Chosen and like even even the uh, the characters, how you've developed characters like Eden, yeah. 
what a wonderful yeah. character, you know, that you don't really know that much about, but you've had to develop them. Yeah. What was yeah. that process like? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So yeah, Eden's a great example. So we know in the gospels that uh, Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. Well, you can then, and, and, and it's, it's a very short scene uh, in the gospels. You don't know much about it. It doesn't mention who Simon's wife is, but we know he had a wife because he had a mother-in-law. So that's a great example of how we operate. So we look at that story and we know it would have had significant resonance in the lives of the people involved. Well, so let's work our way backwards and, and, and think about what could have led to that moment. Uh, why would that moment have taken place? What's the historical context, the cultural context? What was happening when Jesus did that? And so we were able to then use, yes, some artistic liberty um, to create uh, a what we believe is a plausible scenario of who Simon's wife would have been and why this would have been so resonant for her. So uh, you, now that that happened in season one, so season one, you see the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, but now we're going into season three. Well, there's so much more to tell when you know that Simon's married. Well, Simon has been called by Jesus to follow him. And there's a scene in season three where Jesus sends the disciples out two by two to heal and to do some of the work he's doing. And as Simon mentions, to then get the same kind of criticism and resistance that Jesus gets. What does that do for a wife? When you're, when you're home alone, your husband's out doing ministry, and you know that the Romans don't want it to happen, the religious leaders don't want it to happen, uh, you know that your husband's gonna be called blasphemous and a traitor, all that stuff. Uh, what does that do to your marriage? What does that do when he comes back from a trip? I mean, we all experience this today. Any, those, anyone who's married has experienced, and I think we all have similar stories of when a spouse comes home from a trip, my wife and I call it re-entry. And you think it's supposed to be wonderful and happy and we're so glad to see each other. And for some reason, first day back is always tense and weird and right. missed, missed expectations. Well, we dig into that. And we were filming that scene this year of Simon coming back and the weird tension that took place and the misunderstandings and whatnot. And there were people on the crew while we were filming going, do you have a recording in my house? Like, uh, this is exactly what we experienced. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is because I do believe that's the secret sauce of The Chosen, that when you watch the show, you're thinking, that's me. I experienced that. I have the same questions mm -hmm. and struggles that they had 2000 years ago. Maybe the answer and the solution to those questions and struggles can be the same for me as well. So Dallas, why theaters? Especially, you know, streaming is the big thing, right? What made you decide to go to the theaters as well as having it streaming? Well, yeah. I mean, well, and, and you just said it. I mean, obviously we're still streaming. The show is free and easy to watch. We don't even require an email address. I mean, you just go to the chosen app and you can watch the show. Uh, you can catch up on seasons one and two. And when season three comes out, eventually it'll be out on streaming as well. Why theaters, especially when it's a TV show? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we did that Christmas special last year and we're barely even trying and it did so unexpectedly well. It accomplished two things. One, it gave people a great experience. People love to watch stuff in the theaters. I love for them to see my work in theaters, obviously, up on the big screen with the great sound, the dark room, watching with other people, the laughter is better, the tears are better when you're watching it with a group. Uh, and But also it gave a new, um, for lack of a better term, marketing awareness for the show by putting, you know, when it launched in, in the top five at the box office and when people are seeing the posters in the movie theater, it's like, wow, what is this? I gotta, I gotta check this out. So all those benefits are, are make it an obvious choice for us to, to try it again with this season and we'll see how it goes. Wow. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm, I, I know it's gonna do great. I love what you said about how, you, what you said about developing Eden and, and what that would mean. In fact, um, I had the same experience with my husband and when coming home and you think it's going to be this honeymoon and instead it's this tense moment where 
you wonder if you're going to make it after that for whatever reason. It's a crazy thing, the opposite of what you think. But another thing that I hear mentioned all the time and that I really love about your show, about the way you're explaining the life of Christ and, and dramatizing it is um, your use of women. You know, yeah. they're, they're, that women are involved, that women are part of Jesus' life, that, that he doesn't send the women away like the women are less than. Right. And, you know, so often it's thought of the opposite. So how, what's the reaction to that been like? How has that been? Yeah, it's been awesome. And I think one of the cool things about it is that we're not doing it to make any kind of political statement or to try to correct any previous uh, poorly, poor portrayals of women in, in other Bible projects or the ignorance of it in, in other Bible projects. It really is just a, a part of our attempt to be authentic. Uh, the stories of the Gospels have multiple instances where Jesus specifically sought out women for a particular reason. He was the first, uh, a woman was the first person he announced publicly he was the Messiah to, the woman at the well, which we covered in season one. Um, Mary Magdalene was the first uh, person that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection. Uh, there's multiple moments in the Gospels where he had such a beautiful relationship with his mother. And these are things that if we're going to tell an authentic and meaningful story about Jesus, especially over the course of multiple seasons, it would be bizarre of us to, to leave out some of the really unique things that Jesus did uh, regarding women. And uh, I think that's especially, I think it makes it even more resonant when uh, you also portray what they were up against. At that time, women were so su such second-class citizens. And Jesus came, and, uh, and, and as we say and, and quote all the time from Isaiah 43, 19, behold, I am doing a new thing. And one of our key phrases of the chosen is get used to different, which Jesus says in season one. Well, that's part of different. Jesus uh, did things in a different way than, than the Pharisees expected, than the Romans expected, and even his followers expected. Wow. And how he interacted with women was part of that. And uh, the response to that has been overwhelming. We have women all the time just saying, thank you. I, I feel seen. I feel like I can connect more with some of these people when I haven't been able to in other portrayals. All right. Kim has a question regarding her book, Love Is. And she asked this question for everyone that she has on uh, Gets to Co-host with me. Go with that question, Kim. Yeah, Dallas, I decided a bit ago that I was going to dedicate a full year in search of the true meaning of love because it seems to be something that we question, right? But but yet God is love. And so so love must be something that's alive, something that you are rather than just something that you feel. So I used First Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, and and focused on one word a month to figure out what is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? And the things I found out about love just blew my, like, I feel like I did the world's homework for you when it comes to the truth about love. And I'm just curious, like um, this project has to be a love passion for you. I mean, you, uh, this has been a lot of work. I mean, this isn't something that came overnight. You had to go source money. You had to come out of um, a failed film that you thought your career might be over. Like wh where does love play a part in that for you? Well, you, you know, I, I heard you say the, the phrase love is, and for me, uh, I mean, it's many things, but one of the key words that comes to mind is love is personal. And I see throughout the gospels, uh, Jesus was a God of the personal. He spoke to people directly. He met them where they're at. He called them in specific ways, unique to their personalities, unique to their situations. And uh, that's one of the things about the show that is 
been not only exhibited in how we portray Jesus, but also how it's impacted me, just knowing that God is the God of the intimate and that Jesus wants a personal relationship and that love uh, is not just something that uh, applies to a group of people, but whether it's your wife or your husband or your kids or your friends or whatever, or, or even your relationship with God, um, love is personal. Uh, it looks a little different with each person in your life. And if it doesn't, that's a problem because you should be sacrificing and being empathetic and being submissive to the needs of and the love.